Welcome to Coffee with Kojo, a podcast produced by the School of Communication and Journalism at South Dakota State University. My name is Rocky Daly, and I'm an associate professor in the school. This episode features a conversation with outgoing Kojo director, Dr. Lyle Olson. Dr. Olson has been part of the school since its inception, as well as decades as a faculty member in the Department of Journalism and Mass Communication. Student Jonathan Gouger got to visit with Dr. Olson before his retirement. Welcome back to Coffee with Kojo. And if you're new, make yourself comfortable. Stay a while. It's nice to have you. I am your dapper and mediocre host, John Gouger, and I'm here with the supreme leader of Kojo, Lyle Olson. How are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. It's uh, last week of classes. Another semester is about wrapped up. So. Mm-hmm. And this is totally the original podcast. We didn't have to do any other takes because of my audio failures totally original just very very organic <laughs> right that's the story we're going with oh of course of course it's probably best for me to get another run at this anyway so. uh, no you're, you're fantastic last time what are you talking about you know i was i was devastated because you were you were doing you're giving out pretty good answers and i was like oh man it's quite the sophisticated fella oh okay <laughs> So the, the main uh, news with you is that you're retiring. I am retiring. This is my, uh, my last semester. I've been in higher ed 43 years, uh, 32 here at, at, at SDSU, and um, it's, a, it's a pretty surreal feeling. Um, but uh, no one dis- reason for doing so other than uh, I'm at that age. I've, I've had some, a couple health issues and re- health scares in recent years and uh, just decided it was probably time to call it good. Will you ever miss the academia of SDSU and just being with students? Yeah, I will. Uh, My passion really is teaching and uh, one of the things about being in higher ed is, uh, you know, you just kind of stay young because (laughs) you're hanging around young people and uh, and, and particularly in this major, uh, I think you, you mentioned last week uh, that journalists and people in mass comm are just really interesting people. They, oh, yeah. they, uh, in advertising and, and public relations also, they have a lot of interests. And um, when, you, when you combine that with the fact that you're working with young people who come in with new ideas, and uh, it's, uh, it's, it's going to be tough to be away from that. But um, I'll still maintain... Uh, some contact with the campus, come to lectures and that kind of thing. Well, I mean, you kind of have to be an interesting person in order to enjoy that type of stuff, you know, because you have to be interested in different types of subjects. And uh, Ted from Fresh Produce, he said this, in order to be successful within the communication industry with journalism, advertising, whatever, you have to lead an interesting life. Can't say stale or else you don't want to learn new stories, new things and different avenues. Yeah, and, and Ted is so extremely creative, but I, I track with that. I've, I've always so glad I picked journalism as a career. Out of high school, I actually was considering pharmacy or journalism, and um, I, I, I just kind of had a hunch that even though there would be some interesting things in pharmacy and, and there'd be new research and such, uh, journalism would be a career path that would allow me to dabble in a little bit of everything, and that's been the case. Um, you know, some journalists focus on business journalism or they're mm-hmm. a sports writer all their life. But um, I've been able to just dabble in uh, anything that interests me and read up on it and write a story or teach. I've taught, if you count 
um, independent studies and special topics courses, I've, I've taught almost 30 classes at SDSU. So, I mean, it's not your normal career where somebody comes in and maybe teaches five to 10 classes. I've done a little bit of everything. So you're the jack of all trades. Yeah, I guess, and probably a master of none of them. My dad was a car whoa, whoa, whoa. carpenter, and in the same way, I mean, you know, I can frame up a house and I can build some, do some fine finish work inside, but I'm, I'm not an expert at in either one, but I can get the job done at the jack of all trades level, I guess. I mean, as long as you're interested in that type of topic or certain topics, you're going to be masterful with it within some time. Doesn't matter how many or how little topics or I guess skills you mastered, quote unquote mastered, as long as you're interested in it, it doesn't really matter. Yeah, and a lot of teaching is just knowing a little bit more than your students and, mm -hmm. and staying ahead of them and getting them interested so that they can pursue it at a deeper level on their own. And uh, if you've done that with an introductory class, um, and taught them to be learners that's and then they exceed your knowledge level that's what it's all about that's fine i'm okay with that i'm gonna nerd out on you for a second but it's like the padawan has surpassed the jedi if yes. you're a star wars fan <laughs> yes and that's just fine I, you've been here for a while you've been here for over 20 years actually 27 right for 27 in, in teaching, mm -hmm. I guess, let me see, 25, 26, 27, and then I, I started to slowly move into administration. So I've been here 32 years, but, but the last five years have been um, completely administration. So in what ways have SESU changed when you started coming here to the time you're now leaving? Oh, my. Uh, the, the university itself has obviously gotten um, – uh, bigger. I don't know what enrollment was when I came. I believe it was in the seven or 8,000 range. Mm -hmm. And now, of course, it's about 12,000. There's a lot more buildings, um, higher quality buildings. You know, most mm -hmm. of the buildings were, were fairly old when I came. There's been a, a huge uh, building uh, race in recent years and very nice facilities. It's certainly not unexpected in the field of uh, journalism, mass communication, advertising, PR. Um, that industry has changed so much with the Internet and social media and uh, different advertising and, and news distribution methods. Um, it's changed so much. The curriculum, we're, we're constantly tweaking the curriculum. Uh, just so many changes, it's hard to, to, to listen. And then the university has um, moved in directions uh, to being more diverse, to have better levels of assessment. So instead of saying we're doing a good job preparing our students for the work world, we need to actually assess whether we are or not, and if they're getting jobs where we say they're getting jobs, and if the courses are actually doing what we uh, we set out for them to be, that we're meeting our mission, and we're so assessment and there's more resources now to teach better in the classroom than there was when I started uh, early on. It just kind of assumed that you'd teach the way you were taught or mm -hmm. teach the way you thought you best learned. But now we have lots of resources to teach better. So, so many improvements have uh, made uh, higher education and SDSU and specifically uh, uh, better. And you also came here during your undergrad, correct? It was I did. I I I, I was out of the state for two years, um, and but I knew I was coming back to to SDSU to finish in journalism. Once I decided journalism versus pharmacy, so I 
I came back and I had uh, I had SDSU's catalog in advance, so I knew how my courses were going to transfer in, and uh, I was all ready to go when I got here, and to major in journalism and complete an internship, just like you're going to have to do, <laughs> Jonathan, and um, just like everybody has done for decades since I was here, and probably at least two decades before I arrived, and um, I actually ran across my. Um, in my file in the building here from 1972 to 74, I'm sorry, 74 to 76. And I saw my typewritten internship report. Oh, wow. And it's, we're requiring the students to do the same thing today, except it's not on a typewriter, <laughs> it's a desktop publishing. There's one part where I wrote in a word um, because I didn't want to put it back in the typewriter and line the pages <laughs> up and, and add the. It was just the? The, it was just the. <laughs> But it's, we require the same report today. We re require a three or four page report of the experience, and mine was three or four pages. And uh, at one point I say, uh, I, I probably am sounding like an advertisement for, um, for the internship program, but this has been the most valuable, one of the mm -hmm. most valuable things I did in my college degree at SDSU. Well, we're saying the same thing now. I mean, the fact that we require an internship constantly students are telling us it was one of the most valuable things that we got out of the program. The courses prepared them for it, but to actually go out, get an internship, complete it, get evaluated on that, and then mm. to have that on their resume for their jobs um, worked for me, and it worked, and it's still working for students today. No, of course. Well, classes are kind of like training wheels. You know, you put them on, you learn the fundamentals of what you do for whatever major you're going to be in, whatever occupation you're going to be in. And then once you get in the real world, you, that's when the real learning starts. Now, granted, I have not had an internship yet. <laughs> so I'm um, speaking out of you know what. But you, you learn real world application, and that's invaluable. And, and if your experience tracks with other students, uh, many, many hundreds of students through the years that have done internships here, it will uh, be the stepping stone to maybe a second internship, mm -hmm. probably your first job. And maybe you'll end up like me. I graduated from SDSU in May of 1976. I have worked for 45 years and have never been unemployed a day in my life. A hard-working man. Well, I don't know about that. I think my college education prepared me mm -hmm. uh, to take the next step, the next step, the next step. And, um, and, uh, and part of that was the required internship and the useful courses that I took uh, when I was here. Well, also, I think you're, just, you're smart about it as well. I mean, it's hard finding jobs, but it's all about networking and trying to find connections, which it's kind of hard for people to do that during COVID times. But the, the fact that you have not been unemployed for your entire life is quite impressive. The, the other thing that, that happened with me is, you know, I, I, I totally planned on a career in journalism. And, mm -hmm. and my passion was newspaper journalism, which, as you know, now they're struggling. But how many years down the road? Five years in? I, I had the opportunity to start teaching. That was never on my career mm -hmm. radar screen. It was not a bucket list item. It was not the direction I ever planned on going. Tried it, liked it. Uh, was teaching part-time and advising, uh, 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 doing public relations part-time, and I faced a decision of one or the other. Mm -hmm. And I'm almost positive my bosses, superiors at the time, thought I'd pick public relations. And I said, no college public relations, <laughs> university marketing kind of thing. I said, I think I'll try this teaching gig. And it was kind of like, what? You're, <laughs> you're too, um, your personality is not such that it's 
uh, you know, I'm an introvert. I was introverted. And there's, mm-hmm. they, they basically said, I don't think you're going to survive. And I said, well, give me a try. I've been teaching ever since. Um, it, it turned out to, to be really what I was called to do and what ended up being a very worthwhile career, while at the same time maintaining some professional work and doing some writing, um, teaching writing, but also doing some writing. So I ended up with a teaching career that was never uh, anything that I planned on doing. It's interesting how just life works like that. People try to plan their life strictly all the time, but it never really works out. Things happen unexpectedly, or you just grow as a different person. I'm different from when I was 18 and like 21, two completely different people. Mm. I can say the same thing about you probably. Probably a different person five years ago. Grow with people with different interests, and you grow with that. It's very interesting how you just developed into becoming a teacher and not being a, like a, a news journalist or being in PR. Exactly, and, th- and then once I, I taught for 25, 26, 27 years here, I, I really did not have administration in mind. Mm-hmm. I, I got to dabble in a little bit as an assistant department head and did some curriculum paperwork and kind of enjoyed that. And, and I really did not have uh, uh, being the director of the school in mind. But here I am, finishing up my third year. It's been very fulfilling and rewarding. Mm-hmm. It's been a, a continuation of the teaching that I had done for so many years. Um, again, one of those little directional turns in life that turned out to be um, really rewarding and fulfilling. So how was the transition period from being a teacher to being more administrator? Talked about that quite a bit recently because there are other schools that are forming on campus and um, and uh, we've had meetings with them to uh, in, in the college. Uh, we've had meetings with the faculty and folks in those units to talk about how to how to set up the administration of a, of a school. And um, I found immediately when I became assistant department head mm-hmm. that my relationship with my colleagues, uh, relationship with students didn't change much. I was still teaching some in the classroom, but Immediately, you move from faculty into uh, administration. Even though I was still primarily faculty, I was kind of seen as part of the problem. I was no uh, longer—I was no longer just faculty. I was mm-hmm. administration. I was them, and relationships changed a little bit um, with uh, with my colleagues here in Kojo, and they, and it would happen anywhere on campus. And then as I moved into interim department head and then director. Uh, the relationships change just as they would at any workplace. Mm-hmm. If you move up the ladder and you become someone's supervisor versus a peer, it changes. Uh, and that changed uh, immediately as soon as I had any administrative responsibility. You're a, the head of a department. How stressful is that? It can be pretty stressful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if this is, I haven't checked this out, you know, firmly, but. Um, I'm 66 and a half, be 67 in, in September. I don't know how many other administrators on campus are older than me. Um, there are faculty who teach into their 70s. Faculty teaching can be stressful also, of course, mm-hmm. um, but not quite so much so as being in administration. So, so it's stressful enough that people, after they do it for a while, um, decide, you know, it's time to retire. Um, the stress and the, the 12 months a year of responsibility versus most faculty are nine months with the option to teach in the summer, that kind of thing. So yeah, the personnel matters and the student issues that come up can be pretty stressful to deal through deal with. And then of course, COVID-19 yeah. 
just was uh, was a nightmare in many many instances. Last year at this time, we were dealing with how to figure out uh, how to get internships for students who had to have one to graduate. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had no roadmap, and we didn't know at this point of uh, April uh, going into May what was going to happen with summer internships. As it turned out. Uh, we couldn't really have them. We only had three or four students who did uh, traditional inter- internship. The rest, a uh, couple did, um, I think one or two did a face-to-face one. They signed off papers to do that. A couple students did a virtual one, and then we had students in a class. They yeah. kind of replaced it. Now, this uh, this year, we're we're finishing, uh, we're working on paperwork daily almost and have probably almost 20 students placed, over 20 students in internships just like they were prior to COVID. They're going out to work uh, in workplaces around the state and the region. Um, it's it's still time consuming, but it was not the kind of stress that came uh, last year, not knowing where they were gonna get that experience. I mean, how'd you deal with that whole entire COVID-19 pandemic during, in the spring? Because it just happened all of a sudden, Every, everyone's quarantined and there's online classes. It's such a drastic change. Were you overwhelmed at any points, or were you like, okay, we'll figure this out? All of us were overwhelmed, you know, all everybody at administration, because faculty want to know what they're going to be teaching in the summer. The students wanted to know if they were going to be doing an internship or hanging around at home, and we couldn't give them immediate answers. We just had to say, we don't know. we got to wait and see what the next step that the Board of Regents does or the next step that SDSU does. So things just got set aside. Other mm-hmm. things, you know, I mean, in my role, one of my, one of my responsibilities uh, as director of the entire unit is to do some fundraising, you know, work with alumni who might donate money to support the school. That had to be set aside. Uh, other things that maybe I would have, uh, normally I, we do, a, I do an, an annual report that kind of sums up the academic year, takes quite a bit of time. Um, I didn't get that done last spring because I was dealing with uh, not only internships, but uh, everybody on campus running an academic unit was trying to figure out how classes would be offered in the fall, mm-hmm. um, trying to figure out rooms and if it would be um, face-to-face or hybrid or online, and, and that uh, accommodate, uh, and then trying to do that in collaboration with faculty members' requests and their, their concerns about their own health. So it was, um, it was pretty intense for everybody overwhelmingly so probably but we were able to set aside other things that just didn't get done in a, that would have been done mm-hmm. in a normal year i mean it's a herculean task to not only have people switch online suddenly <clears throat> but also change almost everyone's curriculum within a short amount of time within two weeks well actually one week because no one really knew what was happening before after spring break quote unquote after spring break so applaud for the uh, coach department, really SESU in general, to keep everyone be like, okay, here's what we're doing, keep on top of it, and yeah. Yeah, I agree. I was really proud of what the Kojo faculty did. I, I see the course evaluations. That's part of my role. Mm-hmm. The student, the ones that you all fill out, the idea surveys, and then it adds up some numbers, and then uh, there's you get a chance to put in some qualitative, some comments, and I see those and summarize those. And I was really proud of what the Kojo faculty did in a short amount of time. And across campus, folks did a, a good job. But, but we had numerous students saying, my, Kojo just, Kojo, Kojo, <laughs> Kojo, 
Kojo just hit a hit this one out of the park. I mean, they they ad adapted well. They made the transition smoothly. They did as well as anybody any other classes that we took on campus. And I uh, heard pretty much the same thing in the fall, at the end of the semester. Just uh, if, if it was hybrid, if it was face to face, or if it was uh, completely online, uh, Kojo folks adapted quickly and well, and that was uh, that was really heartwarming to see. So looking back on your career, what was the most fulfilling element of it? Probably a couple things. Um, it, it would be uh, seeing students who have gone off, um, probably students that I've had in class, mm -hmm. you know, and then have done well and uh, sent a note back or something that said, you know, that, that magazine writing class I took from you just really set me up for a successful career or what you taught me and uh, we used to have a course in journalism typography it was basic design mm -hmm. and they would say you know uh, the creativity and the the tips you provided in there have served me well uh, ever since i left college that kind of thing is really fulfilling students who go off and uh, as we talked about earlier who end up succeeding in journalism or the magazine industry or public relations far above anything that i ever accomplished and then as I moved in, as I was here longer, and um, new faculty would come and ask me for advice on teaching, folks who had come out of the industry or maybe had just started teaching, and for whatever reason, I guess because I was the old guy, they'd come in and say, you know, I might try this in the classroom, what do you think? And the same kind of thing, when, when those uh, faculty members then um, get tremendously high teaching evaluations and uh, it's obvious that I had a small part in maybe helping them develop their skills in the classroom. Really, really fulfilling. The mentoring mm -hmm. role of working with faculty who now are uh, carrying on the tradition of the excellent teaching that occurs in Kojo. It has to be just the greatest sense of satisfaction to have someone writing you a note or even just asking you for advice, hey, like, what can I do about this? Or thank you for teaching me this. It really helped me throughout, throughout my career. Teaching is not a selfish job by any means. It is a very selfless job where you kind of mold a person into becoming an expert within an industry, mm -hmm. and you're helping them along the way. It's one of probably the, I'm not, I'm not trying to gas anyone up. I'm not trying to kiss anyone's butt or anything like that. Uh, this is a, a true, honest opinion, and I think teachers are probably one of the, the highest regarded professions. I hope so. Uh, I mean, uh, <laughs> I, you know, I, I made that transition from journalism into teaching, mm -hmm. and uh, I'll just share this this little thing. Um, my my um, my son is a doctor, mm -hmm. and I'm proud of that. And I talk to him about uh, about how cool it is that he can save people's lives, and he says, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, Dad, that's right." But you were a journalist. Mm -hmm. You wrote stories that hundreds of people read. And now you're teaching students to write stories that hundreds more people will read. He said, you, you know, you probably have far more influence and uh, um, impact on culture and humanity and, and communities than I would as a doctor. And I'm thinking, okay, that makes me feel good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, that's, but He's, he's true, I guess, you know, a teacher does impact, uh, um, you know, at one point I added up the number of students that I'd had uh, throughout my teaching career, and I haven't stayed on top of that. Mm -hmm. And some people teach large lectures. I've never taught a large lecture, so, you know, I don't have 300 students at a time taking a course from me. Uh, but still over, you know, 
32 years here, a lot of, I've, I've taught a lot of students, and the multiplication effect of that does become substantial if, um, and you do affect a lot of life. So that's, that's really a meaningful part about being a teacher. Oh, definitely. You not only taught people within South Dakota, but also people across the sea as well, in fact, into China, and affected their lives as well. Can you talk about your experiences in Kunming, China? Did I pronounce that correctly again? You or? did. Yeah. I did? Yeah. Woo! Um, yeah, the university had an exchange program with Yunnan Normal University in Kunming. Uh, I guess you said Kunming. I think it's either way. Kunming, China. Okay. And um, it was a life-changing experience for my family. We went there uh, quite a while ago now, 2002. Our, our children were f 15 and 10, and it was just one big, long field trip for them. <laughs> and I taught uh, about 100 students, four sections of 25 students each, uh, written English. They already spoke uh, passable English, so I was there to teach them basic writing. And uh, it was a wonderful experience. Um, I, I had... Uh, I, we talk about how fulfilling teaching here is in America. Uh, boy, in, in China, you know, uh, the cream of the crop, only the cream of the crop gets to university. Mm -hmm. uh, most students do not get there. And uh, they were so appreciative. Almost every class period, somebody would say, thank you for teaching us today. I mean, wow. they were just effusively appreciative. That's not necessarily the culture in the United States. <laughs> uh, it usually occurs afterwards, after they get jobs and they appreciate, look back and say, oh, that was, he really did a good job. He prepared me. Um, some students will thank you um, in the moment, but normally it comes afterwards. But, and, and just all kinds of other life lessons uh, from those students and uh, spending time over there and just finding out how much I did not know about the world, mm -hmm. even though I had traveled some before that. Um, came back with a passion to, to teach, uh, particularly in the area of, of international media, that students needed to know a little bit more about whatever their chosen field is, advertising, public relations, or journalism, about those careers and folks who have been successful in those careers in other parts of the world. So I created an international media class mm -hmm. uh, that's uh, still an elective uh, that I taught as recently as uh, the first part of this semester. 15, 20 students take it every year and, and just find it fascinating because it's so much to learn. And, and then just the fact that I had that experience of teaching uh, somewhere else in the world, almost any other class that I taught at some time, I think about something I experienced in China in a different part of the world. And uh, I have an illustration about, well, over in China, advertising <laughs> is totally different. And over in China, you know, um, uh, t today, uh, newspapers are not very strong, but they really have a strong presence on uh, of radio or whatever the mm -hmm. instance is. I um, had that experience because I was able to travel. I've been to about 24 countries wow. and, um, and uh, just really enjoy learning about other cultures as well as their media so that I can share that in the classroom. I, I guess, uh, how is media different within a journalistic perspective from America? Boy, it varies from country to country. Just the, the basic comment, concept of freedom of the press. Um, mm -hmm. There's just a little section in one of the books that I used to do. And, and uh, in, in that section, these authors talk about in some parts of the world, it's not freedom of the press, it's freedom from the press. It, it's the concept that citizens should be free 
to not have to deal with the press. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay, well, that, that might be helpful, actually, but uh, or freedom of the government to ignore the press. Um, you know, different mm-hmm. perspectives on just that, what we think is a simple term in America, that there should be freedom of the press, should be able to uh, state your, your views, and the media should be able to comment on how public officials and that kind of thing, which can get you killed in probably a half of the countries around the world. Wow. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's such a huge topic. There's so much to learn. And one of the things that surprises uh, American students is there's, a, there's an agency in Paris uh, called Reporters Without Borders, and they, um, they rate press freedom around the world. Mm-hmm. And they take the 200 or so countries around the world that, that are large enough to, to be considered uh, – having a press and uh, the United States is about 40th in the world. They are not at the top. They're really? far from the top and they've been dropping down in recent years because of uh, Trump's treatment of the press, uh, because of, you know, there was an arrest here just down in Des Moines uh, last fall for this woman who was covering a, a, uh, a protest and the police arrested her because they said she couldn't be there. Really? And she didn't have the right credentials or something. But all those kinds of things drop you down the list. And the, mm-hmm. freest, uh, the freest countries in the world uh, for press freedom are always uh, Scandinavian countries, Norway, Sweden, Denmark, Finland. They're, they're always at the top. And uh, when I first started teaching the class, the United States might have been 17th or something, um, but they have dropped in recent years. And I think they were 41 this earlier this semester wow. when, we, uh, when we did that. And students are amazed at that. And, but there's plenty of examples of uh, harassment of, uh, of journalists. And sometimes it comes all the, right back here to South Dakota. One of our current journalism majors uh, was uh, interning at Kello this summer and came out in the parking lot and got hassled by somebody who mm-hmm. said, oh, you're one of those. You're a journalist, huh? I heard about that. You know, and for, I'd never heard of that hitting South Dakota before until this fall. It's, it's weird how just journalists are getting this weird stigma of just not being trustworthy. And it's all because of these weird kind of pop bias blogs. Everyone's trying to be their own journalist. And we talked about this last time as well. This weird free things should be free, but how like news outlets are now trying to get more advertising dollars, which means they're trying to lean towards more for like biases, yeah. To, so more people get get, get to click on it, it is becoming a little bit of a detriment to the um, uh, how people think of journalists. There's right. another word for that, but yeah, yeah. And there are lots of reasons for that. And I, I mentioned last week that one of the things that we've talked about is um, a media literacy class. Mm-hmm. Um, and we teach some of that um, across our curriculum in Kojo. And um, there's a couple units or lessons in, uh, in Speech 101 or Com Study, CMST 101. It'll be coming in the fall on media literacy. But uh, I just don't think uh, public schools, our educational system in the United States is doing a very good job of teaching media literacy to students mm-hmm. so they can sort through the, 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 the fake journalism, the pseudo-journalism, the journalism from folks who are not trained to be journalists, find the, the sources that, have, that are more objective, more factual. They, they don't have a, a framework to do that well, and we're not teaching that well. We're not giving them the tools 
And that's unfortunate because uh, they're, they're going to be impacted by media the rest of their life, no matter what major or what careers they pick. Of course. And it, they thrive off of outrage because that gets the most clicks. That gets the most ad money. And as you mentioned that America is 41st in uh, the, the free press index, mm-hmm. are you worried that it might continue to drop? I don't think it will. I think it's kind of bottomed out about where it's going to stay. They, they have these sections color-coded where uh, I think it's maybe the first 50 or 60 countries. You know, it's, it's still safe to be a journalist there. Mm-hmm. You still get hassled. You might get arrested, but you'll be let out the next morning kind of thing. And then there's a section where it's a little more severe than that maybe, um, you know, and then there's the section where you might be killed. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure we're we're ever going to move into that next sec- section. That's maybe, and I'd have to even look at the list. Maybe it's a country like uh, I'm not even sure who. There'd be some some African countries in it. There would probably be, uh, you know, China's in the bottom list. You can uh, uh, Iran and uh, Nepal. Uh, uh, n- yeah, I believe Nepal's in that list. The bottom of the list is North Korea and Eritre- <laughs> Eritrea. Some of those countries where it's just not safe to be a journalist, but. Mm-hmm. May, in Russia, Russia, I think, is kind of in the middle, toward the middle bottom list. What? Because there have been journalists uh, killed in Russia because of reporting something against the government. Uh, and they're not in the most dangerous places in the world, but it certainly isn't a place where uh, where it's very safe. So, so I think we're kind of bottom out where we're going to probably be for a while now. So it's just more for uh, the reason why we're down here is just because of public perception of journalists and not actually laws that may govern journalists. Right, right. It isn't necessarily laws and such, and, and um, it's it's things that occur, um, you know, being detained, um, not being able to have access, uh, even though you have the right credentials mm-hmm. to a courtroom or something. It's uh, it's not as serious as offenses as it is in other parts of the, of the world. So have you heard about this one journalist? He, he kind of went viral, uh, I think a month ago. He, he's a Russian. He's a Russian journalist. He spoke out against Vladimir Putin and kind of the corruption that goes on there. Uh, and then later, he went back to Russia, and then he got arrested. You heard about that guy? Yeah, yeah. And that's normal. That's normal. That's normal? For countries in that middle and bottom range. Yeah, they have to watch. They have to be looking over their shoulder all the time. Well, the thing is, it's so blatant. Like, they don't even try to hide it. It's just, oh, yeah, you're arrested. For what? Uh, you invaded taxes, which there's no record of. You know, like, they don't even try to hide it. Yeah. Yeah, they they trump up char- Trump. I didn't mean to use it. <laughs> they make false charges and stuff. And, yep. You know, one of the things that students in the class learn very, very quickly is outside of many, uh, outside of you know maybe those forty countries around the world, being a journalist is not a safe occupation. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is you have to be pretty brave to, to to take it on. And then of course there are Americans who go to other parts of the world, and um, and it's not safe. It's it it takes somebody with a special. Uh, you know, you can you can get hassled maybe for working in public relations and advertising and. Uh, uh, but as a journalist, in some parts of the world, you're going to get killed for it. Oh, definitely. And there's always eyes on you, too. Yeah. If you make one minor mistake, you, and you're not gone, but well, in some instances you can be if you're out of the country, but you get ridiculed. Yeah, it can ruin your credibility pretty quickly, mm-hmm. and um, you can't 
you don't have access to sources anymore. So, yeah, it's a... Exactly. And even the code of ethics of journalism is very strict, which is ideal. Yep. That should happen. I'm not going to mention the name, but uh, there was... I remember one person, they didn't put their sources on their quotes. They forged the uh, the quotes. Mm. And it was some it was some minor story. It was it was some rinky dink, it was whatever. But the journalism department from this uh, not this school, but from another school, they kicked her out because of it. That's hardcore. Mm-hmm. But it, it's something that should happen. It is. Yeah. It is, and and there are examples of of uh, a journalist uh, working around the country who uh, you know made up sources or created composites of interviews they had, and uh, eventually got found out, and uh, you know lost their jobs. And that's the way it should be. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I don't know that the the general public knows that. I uh, knows that you know in a in a legitimate uh, news organization, if you make something up you're out the door. Oh, definitely. Um, and uh, that'd be another thing you'd teach in a media literacy class that, you know, ethics and, and accuracy and, and factual and being factual is uh, is a requirement. Mm-hmm. And this mistrust we have towards journalists, it, it's kind of damaging because no one really trusts, like, oh, the traditional journalists. So they kind of turn towards these weird... I, I guess pseudo news sites, which kind of just is a giant echo chamber of things they already initially thought, which may not be true. So it's that it's definitely a detriment to uh, I guess society. <laughs> but do you ever uh, do you ever miss kind of just writing articles like newspaper like articles, just becoming like a I could just be a journalist, a pure journalist. I do. I I, I really like that. One, I think what I do best is um, publications. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and I'm actually kind of excited right now because I think before I uh, retire, I need to do another annual report. I mentioned that we didn't get one done last year, mm-hmm. and um, so I've got some story ideas, and I started writing some stuff here the other day, and I and I'm, I got a little charged up thinking this is fun. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna have fun with this. I'm gonna gather up some <laughs> photos. I'm gonna interview some people. I'm gonna have some folks write some some stuff for me, and I'll edit it, and we'll have a little uh, 16 or you know in the old days you had to print you had to do publications in four page increments. You know you couldn't mm-hmm. have a seven page publication. Because the way they fold the paper is, it's got to be four, eight, twelve, sixteen, twenty, twenty-four. Yep. And um, I'll still probably do that. You know? <laughs> so I, I will not produce a seven-page uh, uh, annual report. It'll be uh, it'll be eight or twelve or something. And uh, and then the mo- last time we did it, we didn't print it. We sent it out as a PDF magazine type thing. Mm-hmm. Save a lot of money. But I'm looking forward to doing that and kind of wrapping up some things. Uh, for uh, this academic year um, in an annual report, and uh, I'm looking forward to doing that. So are emotions running high then, I guess, the sooner you are about to retire? Probably uh, not necessarily. I'm, I'm a Norwegian, so my, emotion, <laughs> my, Nor- my emotions don't get too high or too low, you know. Um, I, um, I, I, I came back after Easter thinking, where did these last two months go? I only mm-hmm. have two months left, and um, up to that point, I'd kind of been checking off things that I felt I, 
I needed to be working on. But I came back after Easter and I realized that I needed to make some priorities now and I needed to probably set some things aside, leave that for the next person. And um, including uh, since I've been here so long um, and was here as a student even before that, uh, there's some institution, some institutional, I won't, it's more department. There's more knowledge of the journalism program and the, the people who've been, who've taught in it and the alumni from it that um, will disappear, you know, uh, when I, uh, when, when I'm no longer around. So I'm kind of going through files and kind of pulling together some historical stuff that either will be left here or, or taken over to the library so they can have them uh, in the archives there just to make sure that things don't get tossed out, that nobody, that folks don't know what it is. Oh, exactly. Uh, and we talked about this, uh, again, last week, uh, about, what is it called, the linograph? Yeah, yep, the linotype machine. Yep. The linotype, yeah. Yep, and, and the history, uh, and, and that's something that I learned when I came here, but I, I don't know that it's ever been documented very much. It was probably assumed by those faculty members, you know, that this is kind of the way it's always going to be. And just like that, the industry changes and uh, the linotype machines are gone and uh, and people moved on and taught other things and they didn't take the time to document the history of that. And I don't know how I'm going to track some of that down and I don't have the kind of time necessary to do it thoroughly, but I can at least pull together a little bit of it and get some names and some some basic history and uh, in case anybody wants to do a, a history mm -hmm. of the unit at some point. Well, I mean, you have a 200-plus page Bible of the Of the linotype, yeah. 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 So I'm pretty sure uh, documentation about it, I, I'm pretty sure it's pretty detailed on how to repair it, how it works, all the mechanisms with, inside of it. What's interesting about that, and uh, that students probably wouldn't realize, and I even had to, you know, share this with faculty, is that uh, uh, the the Department of Journalism, in particular, has been pretty successful. has a pretty big pot of money for scholarships. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's probably approaching fifty thousand dollars this year, and will probably be sixty thousand next year, which isn't bad. I mean, other units on it's... campus have more, and others have considerably less than that. But for for 250 students, um, that's quite a bit of money to hand oh, out. Yeah. But if you go down through the list of the benefactors, well, I, I'm guessing that half of them came from that era. They came really? from the linotype area. Windsor Straw, he was one of those authors of the linotype Bible. These were printing and journalism grads back in the 1950s and 60s, and whoever was department head at the time or, or in the SDSU Foundation said, hey, you know, if you want a legacy, leave some money, and <laughs> it can be used for scholarships. Well, these scholarships are still being handed out. Some cases they're small, in some cases they're pretty big. Uh, one was fairly small, 600 bucks a year, until about 2019. We got an estate for $313,000, over a quarter of a million dollars. It came in from the Straw family whose children didn't even go into journalism, but he was a linotype instructor back in the f 1940s and 50s. And now in 2019, we get the benefits of that, and we're mm -hmm. gonna have a scholarship that's gonna go from 600 to, I don't know what the estimate is, it'll just be the interest off the, the, the balance. You know, The money goes in an endowment, and then the interest is given out in scholarships. It'll probably go from 600 a year to six to 7,000 a year. Uh, all from back 80 years ago. 
Eight or 80? 80 years ago. Eight. Okay, I was going to say, <laughs> whoa, what happened? <laughs> and there are some current scholarships. There are some alumni who've created current scholarships, uh, you know, very current, mm-hmm. uh, uh, r- recent years and, um, you know, 15, 20 years ago. But we're still reaping the benefits of, of some of those uh, cutting-edge programs that's, that had a lot of very successful graduates and left their money for, to be used as a legacy. And also, it's just preserving history as well, mm-hmm. you know, which I applaud you for doing. You know, because it's very interesting how journalists like progress, how the techniques and like how I guess business is orchestrated throughout the years. You used to have to go into a dark room, use a linotype machine, and now everything is just digital. Yeah, like it, it, you had to get your hands kind of dirty in order to make something, you know, at, at least decent. Mm-hmm. So, and as the foundation of good communication is the same today as it was a hundred years ago, you know, mm-hmm. um, strong verbs, clear subjects, you know, write concisely, write clearly, don't write elaborately, don't you know, attribute your quotes, yep. um, get the facts, the all those things have changed, but the basic facts are still the same. Definitely, and also the basic foundational skills, as well. the basic tools, are still the same. Oh, definitely. Everything else is extra, but the foundation is still the foundation. Right. You know. Also, know your grammar. Right. The Oxford comma is apparently <laughs> a little bit optional, but eh, it's fine. Yeah, I'm kind of schizophrenic about that, uh, Jonathan, because um, you know journalists, for the most part, don't use it. Mm-hmm. In the Associated Press style book, you you don't use it, uh, and and some of that was just probably absurd attention to space you, you yeah. just got you don't have much space so in, in a headline you 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 put a semicolon um to to end a sentence i don't know why they're just some weird conventions to save space uh and a comma doesn't save that much space but mm-hmm. but i also taught english in my early career and in, in my uh, i basically have a doctorate in in higher ed- education and english and they use the Oxford comma. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I kind of use it sometimes and I don't use it other times. The AP style sometimes, <laughs> it's, it's all over the place. You capitalize this, but you don't capitalize that. You have to memorize all this stuff. And you're like, what is happening? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> for years, it was the same thing with capitalizations. You know, the, the AP style had, for Oklahoma, it was OKLA, period. What? You know, but the postal postal is OK, you know. Um, so there were some of those kinds of things, and I just thought the AP style was ridiculous. Let's just use the the postal abbreviations, and uh, um, so there are things like that. And in the end, it's not a big deal. But uh, I mean, you can always look back at the book or yes. online, you know, yeah. make sure everything's correct. But but anyways, I, I appreciate having you. You have been a wonderful guest on Coffee with Kojo, and remember, this podcast is sponsored by the like and share button. So, if you love this podcast, please use those buttons, respectively. Thank you. Coffee with Kojo will go on hiatus until the beginning of the fall 2021 semester. Our next podcast will be available on August 20th. This podcast is the property of the School of Communication and Journalism at South Dakota State University, which reserves all rights to its use. Music by Cody M. Johnson and Tyler Addison James is licensed through AMP Music. 